Yeah, that's where we are. And even more, I've got a copy of the script now, and an, another line Mark says after all that is, or ever get the feeling that it doesn't matter, that nothing matters. You could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and you wouldn't lose voters. No, that was someone else. He says you could go out and kill someone and it wouldn't mean anything. So, he's a little more bleak in some of his rants in the script. So it's a little more weird, but we'll get to that when they come up. Um, we start, oh, I'm Robert. And I'm Sarah. And we're here to talk about minutes 17 through 20 of Pump Up the Volume, which begins at the very end of the scene in the teacher's lounge, I guess it is, with Crestwood telling Emerson, Jan, this is no laughing matter. Because, you know, Emerson and the other teacher were enjoying the tape. And then we get a scene in the script that is a little on the nose, so it was good it was removed, because Crestwood basically explains to Emerson what she, how she runs the school. She says, uh, when you've been around as long as I have, you learn, you learn that the student body can be divided into two categories. Those that can help the school and those who won't. And the trick is to accept and accelerate the unavoidable, the inevitable. And then in that same scene, she suspends Jamie for walking by with a cigarette unlit in his hand and tells him, please understand that it's not me that's suspending you. Breaking a rule was completely your choice. School is a pretty good symbol. I think you got it, Cassie. School is a pretty good symbol for society in general, because that's how we treat people. Those who can help our authoritarian regime and those who are resisting it or rebelling against it. Well, yeah, and her wording is very specific there on the verbs, too. Those who can't, those who can, and those who won't. (laughs) As if everyone who isn't helpful is doing it on purpose, which I guess makes her the hero. Yeah. Also, in a way, we are doing it on purpose, but that's for good reason. (laughs) (laughs) True. Well, some high school students might not be doing it on purpose. Right. (laughs) She treats them as if they are. And then we cut to the library movie with um, Nora working. And this is Nora and Mark's first interaction, I believe, at least verbal interaction. They were in class together, but they didn't speak. So this is the first time they talk to each other and Nora's, Working, as you mentioned, in the library behind the desk. She says, you're in my writing class. So just start conversing. And Mark is returning a book titled How to Talk Dirty and Influence People, which is a parody of How to Win Friends and Influence People that Lenny Bruce published in 1965. He's a satirist who died from a drug overdose at age 40. He first released this article or it was first released in Playboy and then was later turned into a book. The purpose of the book was to challenge hypocrisy, challenge organized religion and political convention. And Bruce was a big advocate for free speech. So pretty on brand for everything they've had so far here in the film. From that yeah. description, <laughs> yes. I, I would point out that most of the book is just Bruce telling his life story. He he is pretty funny along the way and kind of irreverent. And toward the last, I forget how many chapters, there were quite a few chapters, but toward the end, he does get into detail about when he was arrested for obscenity. And he goes into detail, like transcripts of the trial and what happened there. Uh, And so 
on the one hand, this made me think like maybe the person who decided, well, the person that's it, it's in the script. Alan Moyle put this in the script without actually knowing what the content of the book is. Because the title is a parody. The book is right. not. The yeah. book is just his life story that eventually talks about obscenity and his opinions on things like war, races. Because uh, he served in the military. And he says, war spells out my philosophy of no right or wrong. Just you're right, my wrong. Everything <laughs> is subjective. Except most of the time it doesn't feel like he actually feels that way. Yeah. <laughs> He's quite a uh, actually moral person in his story. And the everything is subjective is interesting too, because that's a very postmodernist thought. And we've gotten a lot of postmodernism in mm-hmm. this film so far as well. So uh, what, what I really liked as a relating to this movie though, is he quotes someone reviewing a show of his, uh, Nat Hentoff in a, a Catholic publication called Commonweal. And he says, it's in, it's in Lenny Bruce and only in him that there has emerged a cohesively new comedy of nakedly honest moral rage at the deceptions all down the line in our society. Bruce thinks of himself as an ethical relativist and shares Pirandello's preoccupation with the elusiveness of any absolute, including absolute truth. His comedy rages through, ranges through religion and practice, the ultimate limitations of the white liberal, the nightlife of the hooker and her view of the day, and his own often scarifying attempts to make sense of his life in a society where the quicksand may lie just underneath the sign that says, take shelter when the civilian defense alarm sounds. It, it it's it's a pretty good book. The the obscenity trial stuff especially is interesting when people trying to define something and whether he can perform his comedy in court and will the audience and the jury be allowed to laugh or will they be instructed please don't laugh. <laughs> which is basically what just happened at the top of this minute because mm-hmm. Jan's laughing which was told this is no laughing matter. Yeah. So she was scolded as if she was a child or a student even though she's a teacher. Mhm. <laughs> um but back to Nora, I guess, in the library. Yeah. So one thing I found interesting here is that after this brief conversation where she also makes a joke about him not talking a lot, mm-hmm. which is something that comes up, and she says, cute, but no way. And at first I thought she was crossing him out of the yearbook, which was confusing because <laughs> I didn't know why he'd be in the yearbook when he was a new student. But apparently she's crossing his face out of a two-page spread that was welcoming new students to the school that year. This was odd for me, though, her saying cute, but no way. And maybe this is just me looking at things from a 2020 lens. But if a guy comes into the library and he's socially awkward and returning a book titled How to Talk Dirty and Influence People, that's going to make me think even more this might be him not crossing yeah, <laughs> it'd be, it'd be, there's a clear 50 50 shot where this is him or it's absolutely not him, but it's definitely, you don't pick one yet. Yeah. I mean, keep the circle around him. Don't put the X yet. He's a suspect. Exactly. The assumptions, the kind of kid who is quiet in real life, who's socially awkward, who seems a bit off, doesn't want to engage. That's exactly the type of person that would have a secret radio show where he's letting all of that stuff out. I, I, I think. Maybe Nora is hoping he's someone who's always outward and loud and because that'd be more useful for what she wants. She wants someone who's going to speak out for everybody all the time and not some quiet guy who can only do it in private. Yeah. So, yeah, cute, but no way. (laughs) (laughs) Then we cut to Mark. Yep. Guess who? It's 10 o'clock. Do you care where your parents are? After all, there's a jungle out there. And then after he says it's a jungle out there, we cut to the iguana eating the bug just to hammer that point home. Yeah, and linger on it. 
<laughs> we get to as the uh, music plays on plays. Everybody knows which I got a nitpick because he played it on vinyl. Now he's playing it on reel to reel. Later he plays it on cassette. He has it on everything, which I guess fits your theme song. You want to have it available no matter what. But yeah, that, as that song gets going, we linger on the the iguana chewing a cricket. After, by the way, we hear crickets outside. Huh. So. Cool. I didn't know. We get the establishing <laughs> shot of the suburb at night, and we hear crickets, and then go to the iguana eating one. And then he starts talking about the system. My parents are always talking about the system in the '60s and how cool it was. Well, look at where the '60s got them. And it's interesting. There was a an article published in Time Magazine that's considered one of the first articles about Gen X. It was published in 1990, hmm. the year the film came out. And a quote from it is, they have few heroes, no anthems, no style to call their own. They crave entertainment, but their attention span is as short as one zap of a TV dial. They hate yuppies, hippies, and druggies. They postpone marriage because they dread divorce. They sneer at Range Rovers, Rolexes, and red suspenders. <laughs> so at this point, the oldest members of Gen X were around 25 and no one really knew who Gen X was at that point, but they had disdain for the hypocrisy for their parents who were dreamers and revolutionaries, but then became something else. Well, yeah, and movies were defining it strangely because you had Heathers, which is entirely irreverent and violent and weird and negative, but, you know, still popular. And then Pump Up the Volume comes out, and then Reality Bites is almost like, yeah, screw that. We're just going to be confused and angry and not know what's what rather than speak out. So it's like reality bites kind of put a, a quash on that Gen X doing anything. Then singles came out and it was boring. Yeah. I don't remember reality bites or singles. I do so not remember anything that. about the movie <laughs> singles other than it had yeah. an awesome soundtrack. And I saw that movie more than once. Well, for the soundtrack, maybe I'll check it out. <laughs> uh, reality bites was actually a pretty funny movie, but yeah, it's basically about Gen X characters who don't know what to do with their life, and so they just kind of do nothing. Um, this week, I not only got a hand my hands on the script for the film, but the script for the musical that got uh, delayed because of COVID this year. Written in 2016, by the way, for this reference. But Mark says, uh, you know what the 60s got them? That's right, people. You've won the 80s. Crack cocaine, HIV, skyrocketing debt. The only saving grace, thank God, is the 80s are finally over and Donald Trump's plummeting into bankruptcy. So at least we'll never have to listen to that asshole again. <sighs> and now good luck trying not to listen. Yeah. <laughs> we do see some community building in the field. So there are more cars mm -hmm. that we cut to in the field. Yeah, as Mark's time. singing from uh, Young Bloods Get Together. Come on, people now smile on your brother. And we cut to the field and, every and they're singing along. Or at least Maz and Joey are. Everybody together trying to love one another right now. There's seven cars out there, said just two. You have information on Get Together, right? No? Oh my god, I forgot to look that up. <laughs> Instead, I looked up the song that was written in the script was supposed to be here because I thought it was a better song for Mark, except Mark probably would have liked it. It was uh, Graham Nash's song, Chicago, We Can Change the World, which was about the Chicago 8 trial and essentially was him saying that... uh Crosby and Stills needed to join him in Chicago for a fundraising concert for the Chicago 8 Defense Fund. 
and has since been covered by an Australian band called Sherbet and David Gilmore and sampled by Kanye West. And I should have information about the music because that's <laughs> what I do, but I was having more fun seems an inappropriate word, but <laughs> I was having more fun going down a rabbit hole about 1980s drug and sex education yeah. programs, which we'll get to we'll a little bit later. Yeah. yeah. Because in, well, in Mark's dialogue here, we have a few things. He's, I think this is the first time that Mark is directly referencing something happening at the school by reading that guidance. Yes. Two letters that you're, okay. <laughs> and he says, I hate school. I hate principals. I hate vice principals, but my true, pure, refined hatred is reserved for guidance counselors. So just in this part, it made me think about how guidance counselors are portrayed in film often as negative, horrible, terrible people that are trying mm -hmm. to make you decide your life before <laughs> you're ready. There are also lots of great descriptions of guidance counselor. The guidance counselor in Freaks and Geeks, I was think, great, was yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> he he tried to make you decide, but he tried in a good way. He wanted yeah. <laughs> you to figure out who you were. Yes. Unlike the one in uh, Say Anything, mm -hmm. all she does is wants to click you off the list. She got you to, com to uh, commit to something. Yeah, everyone's committed but you. You have to commit right now. When we know that 17-year-olds <laughs> can't commit to anything, and if you don't know what you're doing at 35, that's okay, too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so then he... Did you mean to skip the descendants, by the way? I thought you did look them up. I did, but... Mm. I just point out really quick before we get to more of Deaver, that in between we do get Mark switching from 60s song to... A 90s song, uh, the Der Wiener Schnitzel by the Descendants, which is so short, he plays it twice. And the only good things in there really are he sings along and has a great time. We get a weird reaction shot from Jamie. And Maz beforehand says, tune in, turn it up, which is a sort of a reference to 60s as well. So. Yeah, that Descendants song, the entire thing is one minute of mostly spoken word of asking if you want yeah, it's basically just food. ordering food and... And then the cashier says, you won't whale sperm with that. Yeah. I couldn't quite figure out that song. I like an analyzing song. I think that's sort of the point of that song, <laughs> but that's part of why I don't like it is... It's like, okay. You know, it would be more fun if you'd played Chicago, we can change the world, because it can inspire some people. But I guess that song just has some good shock value. And yeah. a lot of 80s punk was just, hey, what did we think of really quick? Let's make a really fast song that mm -hmm. lasts about a minute or two. And that was I mean, the yeah. <laughs> to be fair, that becomes a good punchline in things like, uh, I just hit a blank on the title of the movie. Never mind. Video oh, game no. thing with the, where he has to defeat the evil exes. Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim. The world. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I can't believe I forgot that because they have a song that's called, I am sad. So very, very, very sad. Oh yeah. <laughs> And the only lyric is just the word so sad, sad. Yeah. once, and it's over. Uh, I would also point out before we get back to Deaver that by the time we get to this scene of him reading this letter, Nora is now reading the Lenny Bruce book in her room while she listens to the Tonight Show. And yeah, we have that double page spread of students on her wall because I think she's narrowed it down to it's a new student. Yeah. And what bigger sign do we have of a girl liking a guy than reading what he's reading or listening mm -hmm. to what he's listening to? It's also, it's... Probably the very next day from last night, the show we last saw, and she's got new artwork on her wall. She draws a lot. Yeah. 
She well, had, that's how we see her is yeah. actively drawing. In she's, she's got pictures. Of, uh, essentially, she's creating a sort of composite sketch of who he is with faces where one says nuts, one says big mouth, one says foul mouth <laughs> that were not on her wall before. And then, yeah, we get to, to Deaver. So he says he has in his hands a copy of a memo written by one Mr. David Deaver, the guidance counselor extraordinaire. And the letter is to... Loretta Cresswood, high school principal, and it's about a student named Cheryl. And he says, well, David Deaver writes in the letter, I find Cheryl unremorseful about her unfortunate condition. Bastard can't even say she's not <laughs> the word. The word unremorseful was really triggering. And that's what led me down the rabbit hole of all the, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> that in his conversation with Deaver later led me into looking at how we treated sex education in 1990, which sadly in 2020, we don't really do it much better in most states, but. <laughs> right. And an- another thing I thought about here is, is Cheryl visibly pregnant? No. Because it's also kind of messed up of Mark to out her pregnancy on the air if she hasn't disclosed that herself. That's a good point. I didn't <laughs> think about that. Um, I just assumed everyone knew, but yeah, she doesn't look pregnant. She also doesn't look how she's described in the script, which is as white trash, slack-jawed, and already faded at age 16. Which is a whole other issue of how people write women in scripts. Yeah, (laughs) I'm glad in the movie she's more like just a regular teenager. Yeah, but granted, this was pre-1996 HIPAA, not that... Mark is a medical professional who would need to follow HIPAA <laughs> protocol, but I don't know. It just seemed pretty messed up that he's talking about her pregnancy um, on air without her permission. I don't but, mean to defend Deaver, but devil's advocate here. Is that why he doesn't mention that she's pregnant? It, it like, can officially the school not even know that she's pregnant? It could be, but honestly, I think it's more that Deaver's generation referred to pregnancy in euphemisms anyway. Mm, true. We use, by we, I shouldn't say we, because I didn't, but yeah, <laughs> I guess the general we. Yeah. There were so many euphemisms for pregnancy that I think, I think it would be obvious from Deaver's letter to Crestwood what he was talking about. Yeah, and... There's more in the letter that you can read the prop. Uh, it says, I don't feel that she has a healthy influence on other students here at Hubert Humphrey High School. Two previous guidance sessions. I would interrupt to say only two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, have, with Cheryl, have yielded little in the way of constructive scholastic or domestic planning. And then Mark will read the, he'll read the last line as well of and the letter. I guess if we wanted to defend Deaver at all, I don't know why I would, but. <laughs> <laughs> If we wanted to... Just just from the way he sits back on his couch and sets his tea down to talk yeah. on the phone makes me not like it. Yeah. <laughs> just this, this letter and this bit of the film here reminded me of a concept called compassion fatigue or empathy fatigue. Mm. And I was just listening to a podcast on NPR. Well, it was NPR's Hidden Brain podcast about professions in which people get compassion or empathy fatigue. This is common in teachers, in police officers, in guidance counselors, in social workers, in 
jobs where we're responsible, at least on some level, for the emotional well-being of other people. And most people go into fields like guidance counseling or teaching and even some police officers with intentions of wanting to help people. Right. And then the job itself, because you are expected to be so emotionally present so much of the time, a lot of people's brains will shut down as a protective mechanism and then display the opposite. So come across very cold, come across very uncaring. And Mm. that's a big reason why you see more than 50% of teachers quit within five years. And with what we're seeing now, we're with the stress of teaching during the COVID pandemic, we have a mass shortage of teachers. They don't even have enough substitutes to fill roles. And this compassion and empathy fatigue is also why a lot of social workers miss things, why they quit, why they Mm. get burned out. I mean, a lot of it is just massive caseload and things outside of that that are systemic problems. But a, a part of it or a contributing factor is that compassion fatigue. So I guess that would be my one defense of, of Deaver. We see older people in the field like Deaver and Crestwood and there's been that whole stereotype in film and just media as well about the old crotchety mean teachers. And it's like, well, how did they get that way? Cause most people don't go into those fields unless they care a little bit. I, not everybody cares, but most people care at least a little if they're going into a helping field. <laughs> yeah, there's a line in a previous segment where Mark does talk about Crestwood, specifically on his show, and he's talking about the worst teachers are the ones that stay in it so long that they have to go up the ladder and become administrators. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, he, he just means they're becoming horrible people and doing bad things, but it also might go to that is that once you're in charge of even more students, Partly it's going to be just the numbers overwhelm you and you have, you either have to care too much, which could be bad for you, or care too little because there's just so many of them and you just need memos to tell you who to kick out because they're going to be a problem. Cheryl, by the way, in her room starts listening to the show and as Mark's reading the letter and her room's very simple. Got a few pictures on the wall. Richard Grieco, Johnny Depp, Ralph Macchio. And she's not the white trash uh, girl of the script. I mean, the whole concept of white trash anyway is problematic and messed up within itself. And so I, I don't even it weird written yeah. <laughs> by a Canadian guy, too. Yeah. So I don't even necessarily want or need to defend Cheryl as not being white. Because what are we really saying when somebody's white trash that they don't have money, resources, right. opportunities, parenting? So the whole concept mm-hmm. is messed up. But <laughs> yeah, if you cho- if you choose to be in that under that label that's on that's a different thing you're a different kind of person but yeah usually we mean it we use that label for like poor people it's like that's not fair yeah uh, but mark reads the rest of the letter and she's unwilling to minimize its effect on the morale of the student population and that's when he calls up deaver yeah even though we know they don't care about the morale of the student population if they did they'd be doing things very differently we <laughs> we could almost guess if we wanted to be on like defend Deaver that he might sort of care more than Crestwood at least because yeah. at the end of the movie he I believe he is the one that points out that what Crestwood's doing is illegal he has he's the one who says that line like so he does notice something's wrong unlike yeah. Murdoch and Crestwood are just like no kick out the students get rid of the, all the 
bad apples he, before they're even bad. Does he care that it's wrong or just that it's illegal? It might just be that it's illegal because now he's a party to it. Right. So <laughs> could still just be selfish ends at that point. But we get to Mark calling Deaver. Yeah. And Deaver, well, Mark at first says, you're alive. We're doing a piece on high schools. So we understand that you're a guidance counselor. And Deaver. That's where Deaver sets his tea down and just sits oh. back because he's been, it's like he's been dying to just tell someone this yeah. forever, how great he is. Yes. So he says, I'm head of guidance at Hubert Humphrey High in Paradise Hills, Arizona. I've been here seven years. Mark, can you tell us a bit about what you do? Deaver, I run a comprehensive American values program in which we discuss ethical situations, sex education, drug awareness, and that wording was so odd to me. So that's when I started like going down the (laughs) rabbit hole doing that research. Comprehensive American values. So what was a comprehensive American values program? program and in arizona yes (laughs) you're gonna tell us oh no (laughs) i'm absolutely gonna tell you what a comprehensive american values program was and in arizona at the time they had the worst sex education in the entire country they were ranked (laughs) last (laughs) they had a focus on abstinence it was completely optional so kids didn't have to get any sex education at all if their parents didn't want them to the information was not required to be medically accurate. Let's think about that for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking in America. Yes. <laughs> yes. Since when do we ever care if what are facts or right. science or this? Yeah, this is America. What are you, what are you thinking? No mandate that contraception be discussed at all. And of course, because it's 1990, but this is still true of a lot of sex education programs in 2020. No mention or discussion of LGBTQ needs were present at all. And I'm mentioning this now because this does come up later. Come up yeah. later in the film. There's a huge focus on blaming girls, which we see when we're blaming Cheryl for being unremorseful mm-hmm. about her own condition. So there's victim blaming on girls. They should have said no. Even though that can be dangerous, it can be scary and it can be like we can feel uncomfortable saying no in certain situations but the onus is put on girls and abstinence only education to say no and we know that if a man forces himself that he faces almost no consequences look at brock turner's look at so many look at brett kavanaugh on the supreme court (laughs) Um, men don't really face consequences for rape i believe only four to six percent of rapes get prosecuted that at was all four to six right yes four not, to six not <laughs> sure no one hears 46 yeah <laughs> and yeah so specifically if you're white then you won't get charged if you are a black man or another man of color that dares to look at anybody wrong they're very different rules but if you're a white boy in arizona and you rape a girl nothing's going to to happen to you the girl will get pregnant and she'll be shamed for choosing the pregnancy as she is in this film. If she gets an abortion, it will be inaccessible in a lot of states. And if she is able to get one, she'll be blamed for that. And one worksheet from this time, even read, this is a quote from an abstinence only worksheet, Arizona, encourage students, sorry, this one was actually from Texas, but encourage students 
to stay like a new toothbrush, wrapped up and unused. People want to marry a virgin. (laughs) Sounds like what they said at my school. Yes, just like they want a virgin toothbrush or a stick of gum. And they say encourage students, but the focus is really on girls here because another thing that they did in the sex education program was unwrap a peppermint patty and pass it from student to student. So at the end, they could say that a girl having sex is like this peppermint patty by the time it gets to the last person. No one wants to eat that. Yeah, no one wants to touch it. No one wants to eat it. Nobody wants it near them. So I could go on. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. I, I think that gets the point across. Yeah. In terms of... Well, did you want to say anything in response no, to that? Yeah. No, <laughs> no. No. I would just point out that... Uh, yeah. Uh, was it yesterday, the day before our pre- current president said that, uh, the situation actually doesn't even matter the specifics because it's a stupid thing to say that he thinks science doesn't know. Right. So we haven't really gone anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so why would we need science or compassion in yeah. our sex education programs? We don't need facts and we also don't need somewhere humanity. along the line. We, we got need... liberal enough to have guidance counselors. And then we let Reagan be president, and by 90, what are guidance counselors even for? Except to help Crestwood kick people out, I guess. Yeah, I guess. And if you thought the sex education was bad, the drug education wasn't great. (laughs) (laughs) Weirdly, drugs don't come up in this movie very much. Yeah, they don't come up too much in the film. And I won't say too much about D.A.R.E. If you're our age, or maybe even a little bit younger... Drug Abuse Resistance Education or the D.A.R.E. program. Did you have to do D.A.R.E. Nope. in your school? We had so, a private school. We just assumed none of us were doing drugs. Uh, well, I went to Catholic <laughs> school and we still had the D.A.R.E. program. Mm. The only thing I remember about the D.A.R.E. program is that everybody thought it was really funny and that we had to make this commercial about why not to do drugs. So I was in this group where we focused on alcohol and yeah, we, I don't even remember what the commercial was about. I guess Somebody had our, to bring the soda to drink it, and then, oh no, we got drunk, and now we're passed out. And we're I guess, <laughs> you know, Bible class was at ninth grade. We made short films as, like, uh, like warnings about bad things. Like, there was one about drinking alcohol, mm-hmm. one about drugs. The one I wrote and starred in was about teen suicide, mm-hmm. and it was really dumb. But yeah. yeah, so they made us make little films about stuff like that, but we didn't have a real program for it other than Bible class every year. Yes, and unsurprisingly, Dare failed for the same reason that the sex education, I can't even call it sex education with a straight face, but <laughs> for the same reason that failed, because it's what shaming and scaremongering people doesn't work. And as I say that, I realize I'm also kind of wrong because Trump's president and that's his entire brand is shaming and scaremongering people. No, he doesn't want people to panic. Remember? He's not that. <laughs> but shaming and scaremongering people doesn't seem to work in terms of drug or sex And I hope that siren in the background is, is audible because it's great timing. Yes. <laughs> so multiple studies have shown that students who took part in the D.A.R.E. program were actually more likely to correlate it with higher drug use. And students whose parents admitted to 
drug use themselves and discuss their own drug use with their children resulted in less drug use. So hmm. talking to your kids and being open about your own experiences is helpful. Shaming and scaremongering kids into not doing things, not so helpful. <laughs> so do you think Brian and Marla have told Mark about their drug use in the 60s? And that's why he only smokes regular cigarettes and doesn't steal beer from the fridge? It could be. Yeah, I could see Marla having an open discussion with him. They they do care enough, at least, to notice that he's not doing well. And well, she does. discuss that. Yeah. And Brian cares enough to, when she points that out, to go talk to him. <laughs> Whether that goes well or not, at least he tries. <laughs> so on that note, or should we end on a better note? <laughs> I wish I'd written this one down from Lenny Bruce's thing, but he, he's talking about how he would rather his kids watch stag films than Christian films. And he specifically says he trusts uh, women who have been with lots of men over and over and had it filmed over nuns because at least he knows they're capable of love. Unlike you know, Catholic nuns. Not that he went to a Catholic school, but you did. Yes. So also. And some of my nuns. Shout out to Sister Anicia here. <laughs> she was incredible. But yes, some some nuns, not so much. And I think you've talked about Catholic school on your podcast, which you can tell. Yes. So if you want to hear more about Catholic school and my experiences there, you can listen to Life as a Playlist. Subsequently, if you also want to hear me discuss more about sex education and other social issues, you can also find that yeah. at Life as a Playlist. And you can follow my Life as a Playlist page on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'd like to pretend my shows are more about entertainment, but when Michael Myers' Minute and Annihilation Minute both deal with existential dread and the idea of figuring out if we even exist, I don't know if that's true. Wait, so what are you trying to say? I'm not that entertaining? <laughs> no, I say the purpose of I'm that kidding. is not entertainment. <laughs> if we were Fox News, you'd right. be the news show. I'd be awesome. the entertainment show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which would be most of their shows. Uh, but you can find any of my shows, including those and this one, at uh, lemmingdrops.com. Speak out! They can't stop you! Find your voice and use it! Keep this thing going! Pick a name! Go on the air! Your life! Take charge of it! Do it! Try it! Try anything! Fill your guts out! Say shit and fuck a million times if you want to! But you decide! Fill the air! Steal it! Keep the air alive! And this show you can follow at Pump Up the Minute on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Talk hard! Everybody knows. Everybody knows.